Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. Well, um, when referring to the miners' strike, I can remember you could ask the question, which side are you on? And I was on the side of the miners, like a lot of us were at the time. Millions of people in Britain were on the side of the miners. Now, <clears throat> as this is about pickets, um, I just wanted to quote from an article that appeared on the 30th anniversary. It appeared in The Guardian, uh, 30th anniversary of the strike. And in the introductory paragraph, it says, the anger at the hardship suffered by strikers and their families still runs deep as does the bitterness between those on the picket lines and those who cross them, um, which is an important element in the whole strike. Just to give you an example of what it meant to be on a picket line, I'll go back to this later in my talk. Just an eyewitness uh, as part of this article, a young miner at the time, he describes the situation. He says this, I was running with dozens of riot police in hot pursuit. I ran past an elderly miner on his knees, out of breath. I stopped. He must have been in his late 50s. He had an old, um, long gabardine coat on, and it was, it was uh, hot today. He couldn't get his breath. The riot police were closing in, but I couldn't leave him there. To this day, I don't know how um, we managed to get up, uh, how he managed to get up and run, but he did. I ran alongside till we got out of the way and to safety. This was from the um, events at Orgreave, which became an important key moment in the whole strike. Now, just on what was my connection, you know, I wasn't a minor. Um, I was active in the movement. Um, and I was in Italy at the time, uh, li living there. But I participated in solidarity campaign with the miners, as did people in many countries. Um, I spent three weeks traveling around the Italy, raising money for the miners. Now, this is a picture. I don't know if you can see it. A much more handsome version of myself um, in 1985, actually, towards the end, translating for a miner called Tom from the Littleton Colliery in uh, Staffordshire in, 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 in Britain. He was in Italy raising money for his, his, uh, for his uh, workmates. And I learned a lot by, by traveling around with him. I've got pictures of here sharing a bed with him as well, because we just roughed it um, as we traveled around the country, um, speaking at different events. And we raised a few thousand pounds for his pit. Um, but I also experienced as a, as a young boy the 1972 strike, which was a powerful strike of the miners. Um, and there, the question of picketing comes up, and I will try and go into that. But my memories of that was long power strikes, no electricity in the evenings at home. My father was an industrial worker. He, he was on a three-day week because they introduced the famous three-day week in industry in an attempt to reduce the consumption of electricity in order to fight the miners, basically. In 1972, they failed, of course. That was followed in 1974 
by the um, miners' strike, which brought down the Conservative government. Um, all of this had an impact on me, for instance, as a 16, 17-year-old watching all this. It served to radicalize me, radicalize in the Marxist sense, the socialist sense, um, and lots of young people uh, that I remember at the same time. Um, so that's my connection to it. I followed those events. But let's put the, the miners' strike a little bit into historical context. There was a powerful general strike in 1926, the famous British general strike, um, which, which went down to defeat. Um, and the, real, the, the, the reawakening of the miners in terms of militant strike action really emerges in the 1970s again. And it was the, the 1970s was the end of the post-war boom, the end of uh, so-called class peace um, and, and stability, um, and uh, the first worldwide recession that affected all countries. 1974 um, was, was a key turning point. Um, now the, and the miners' strike was to prove a key moment in the class struggle in Britain in that context. But just to give you a, a few little figures as well, in the late 60s, inflation started to take off, not just in Britain, but globally. But in Britain, in 1971, it was 10%. In 1925, oh, 1925, in 1975, it got to 25%. And it stayed, sorry, it stayed between 5 and 10% in the 1980s. That level of inflation was one of the factors in the widespread strike movement of the 1970s as workers struggled to keep up with the price increases. I'm saying that because it has lessons for today. Inflation is rising and what is coming is a new period of class struggle like what we saw in the 70s and with the miners' strike. Unemployment um, started at about 4% and went up to 12% by the 1980s. Uh, the period of 1980-85 saw also very high unemployment in Britain. You had a, com a combination of recession, inflation, unemployment. Now, um, there was a growing wave of strikes. I mean, I lived in 1972 it was. My father was on strike for seven weeks, engineering worker. That's a lesson in class struggle. I used to come home every day from school and get a strike report from my dad, how the assembly had gone, how the picketing was going, how the negotiations were going. And I was even proud to see my father on the, at the front of a demonstration, a workers' demonstration in town with about 10,000 workers with his little lunch pack and his cigarettes. And um, he was proud to be on it. That has an effect on you when you see your dad doing that and other workmates and other people involved in strike action. It was a general mood. 1972, you could say Britain was on the verge of a general strike. It could, it could, have, it could have happened. Um, now, um, I'll go into that a bit more in detail, but the um, Thatcher thought in 1984 that she could provoke a strike of the miners and it would be a quick, sharp um, strike and a defeat. Um, over a short period of time. The Tories were taken aback by the response of the British miners. It was a solid strike, militant, solidarity across uh, communities, 
solidarity from other sectors, solidarity from railway workers, electricity workers, and the public in general. Bucket collections would be held on the streets and people would be willingly putting their money in, in the buckets to help the miners. In reality, there were some scenes that year that you could say looked more like a civil war than a strike. Um, miners versus the police. Um, and some miners were beginning, and some miners' families were beginning to draw revolutionary conclusions. The nature of the state was stamped on their, on their bodies. It wasn't just a theory in a book. You could see it. Um, the thousands of, our, of, of, of police um, violently attacking miners as they were organizing um, the pickets. Now, just to give a bit of, of, of a background uh, or a timeline, let's say, the miners' strike started on the 6th of March, 1984. It ended on the 3rd of March, 1985. Can you imagine a strike that lasts for a whole year with all the sufferings? It was a strike against the closure of collieries led by the National Union of Mine Workers, whose leader was Arthur Scargill, who became a renowned militant trade union leader in Britain. With over 140,000 miners on strike, just to give you an idea, over 11,000 miners were arrested during the strike. Several were killed in the picketing and in the charges against the pickets. 8,400 were charged um, after they were arrested. There were some divisions, of course, some areas uh, did not come out on strike. That was a, a weak point of the strike, areas like the Nottingham and, and Derbyshire, but I'll go into that a bit later on. 26 million person days were lost as a result of the strike. The biggest strike since the general strike of 1926. Now the strike started on the 6th of March in the Cortonwood Colliery in Yorkshire when they walked out. They had had a ballot in 1981 which had voted in favor of strike action should there be closures. Uh, of, uh, of pits um, and they based themselves on that ballot and said they're, they're going to close the pit we come out we voted for this and they were out on the 12th of March six days later Arthur Scargill leader of the NUM declared the strike official they were seeking to repeat the victory of 1972 and 74 but those two previous strikes which I'll go into a little bit in a minute, had been a big warning to the, to the ruling class of Britain and to the Tories themselves. They actually prepared. It's all documented. They prepared for this strike. They were preparing a provocation and they were preparing to take on the miners to give a lesson to the rest of the working class, in effect, because it was the most militant and most organized group of workers. So what did they do? They built up coal stocks. Um, the fact that the strike was called at the end of winter, you could think with hindsight that was a mistake. It was just when the consumption of coal would start to go down. So they, they built up the, um, the, the coal stocks. Um, they worked on areas to try and keep as many miners at work as possible. They imported coal from places like such as socialist Poland um, at the time. Um, and they prepared the police force for massive mobilization of forces. Um, in fact, um, the, uh, the, the, the police force was actually reorganized for this purpose. Now, they never called 
They never organized a ballot. That's one thing the miners, the units didn't do because the, the strike became a spontaneous movement. Area after area were coming out. And at one point, the majority of the miners were on strike. And there was a, a, a discussion on whether to have a ballot. In September 84, months into the strike, it was declared illegal because there hadn't been this ballot. Now, in April 1984, roughly five or six weeks into the strike, there was a special nas national delegate conference of the National Mine Workers Union on whether to hold a ballot. The delegates voted 65 to 54 not to have a ballot. They were saying, we don't need a ballot, and proceeded with the strike. Um, this explains also why this, this was, with hindsight, you could say this was a mistake. It gave the bourgeois ammunition to say it was an illegal strike, it was undemocratic. It gave the trade union leaders who didn't want to organize solidarity an excuse to hide behind. It gave the right-wing labor leaders an excuse not to support the strike. Um, and um, certain areas stayed out. And yet, there were moments in previous occasions where there had been a previous ballot, for instance, where 55.75% voted to, um, uh, to oppose the introduction of the national incentive scheme, which was being attempted to be imposed on the miners. And the leadership then, the right-wing leadership, ignored the ballot. So when there was a ballot for strike action, it was ignored. When there wasn't a ballot, they attacked them for saying, you're not carrying out a ballot. Um, there was a bit of hypocrisy involved here. Um, but um, this was something that was to be ever-present throughout the strike and probably was, uh, with hindsight, a tactical error on the part of the leaders because at the height of the strike, a ballot would clearly have won. Now, whether that would have convinced the more moderate areas to come out or not, nobody can have a crystal ball that can say that but it would have enormously strengthened the workers who were for strike action in those, in those areas. Now, going back to 1972, seeing that this is a campaign that refers to picketing, in 1972, during that strike, you had the famous Saltley Gate picketing. And it wasn't just mass picketing. It was um, picketing by workers not in the industry. There was a strike in Birmingham of the engineering workers. Many factories came out on strike and the workers went to the Saltley Gate, the, 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 the gates to the pit. 10,000 workers turned up and blocked the pit. They had to close the gates. There was only, only a few hundred police uh, present at the time. And the mass picketing had a huge success. And then you had the phenomenon that was introduced of the flying pickets. The flying pickets would be pickets who would move from one area to another, depending on the needs and what pits needed to be picketed in large numbers. And it was a huge success. And the government really was not ready for it. Um, there are, there are, there's plenty of articles that have come out since. And uh, I'll quote um, one article referring to, the, to that period, again from The Guardian. The government, remember this was a Tory government, in 1972, elected in 1970. The government failed to mount a serious challenge to Arthur Scargill's flying pickets during the 1972 miners' strike because they had secret police advice that any serious attempt 
to break the blockade of Britain's power stations, because they were picketing the power stations as well, was bound to lead to violence and deaths. The emergence for the first time in the 1972 strike of the 1,000-plus flying pickets targeting power stations and coal depots and organized with military precision by the Yorkshire National Union of Mine Workers were a devastating new industrial weapon, this phenomenon of the flying pickets. And um, were very, very successfully used in 1972. And there's lots of talk about the humiliation of the government, the weakness of the government, the fears the government had that this could provoke an even bigger uh, movement. Um, just to give you an idea, more than 60,000 trade unionists had been involved in picketing 130 collieries and 99 power stations and coal depots across Britain with only 300 people arrested. You see the difference here with 1984. Now, that strike was a success. The government was incapable of um, reacting against it. But this was also in the context of a situation where Britain was on the verge of a general strike. I didn't realize at the time, when I look back and I think, that seven-week strike my dad was involved was part of this. It was part of this radicalization across all industries in, um, in Britain. At the same time, you had the, the Pentonville Five. They were the dockers who had been arrested, sent to prison. Some of them spent several years um, in prison. And there was a huge movement of, for their um, uh, uh, freedom. And um, it was the focal point of, of, of militant action. Um, 72 strike was a blow to the Heath government. And then there was another strike in 1974, the end of uh, the winter of, of 74, and which lasted a few weeks. Heath decided to challenge the miners and he called an early election. And he actually said the election was to ask the people of Britain, who runs this country? The government, the elected government, or the unions? Well, the people of Britain answered the unions. The Tory government was defeated and, the, and, and people voted for the Labour Party and brought the Labour government to power. The Tories were humiliated by the miners on more than one occasion. Um, now, this then is what led the bourgeois to rethink and to prepare. And they consciously prepared. The documents are there. Meticulous preparation at all levels for a future strike. Thatcher took out the revenge of the ruling class on the miners for what they had done previously and um, uh, provoked, you could say they provoked the strike of um, the, the, the miners in 1984. Um, now, during, during this strike, several events took place, such as sequestration of the National Union of Mine Workers funds. Now, the, the union had built up funds like all unions, to survive a strike like this. So the state now came out really hard. They blocked the funds. Then the miners had to go, like the campaign I was involved in, um, collecting money, going on the streets, going to other workplaces. There was a huge movement of solidarity to raise the funds, to literally feed the miners, to help them to survive um, uh, that long, drawn-out strike. 
The, the funds were sequestered for, in August um, 1984. Um, now, the, the, the tragedy, of course, is the unions did not um, organize the, the sufficient solidarity, even though some of them, like the transport in general, were threatened with um, a sequestering of funds. And the truth is, had the TUC called a one-day general strike in support of the miners, that strike would have been won. The problem, of course, was if you win such a strike, you enormously strengthen the confidence of the working class, and it won't stop there. It can move on to much higher aims, and it could have been a huge movement against capitalism itself. Um, and the union leaders played the role that they're called on, i.e., as Trotsky referred to them, the labor lieutenants of the bourgeoisie, i.e., the agents of the ruling class inside the workers' organizations, whose aim is to use their position of leadership not to lead to successful strikes, but to soften the strike, to moderate between the classes and hold back the class. And they use the excuse of the, of the lack of a ballot um, to, um, to hide behind. Now, that was one of the big problems the miners faced, the lack of organized action by the other unions, even though there were some examples of solidarity, the electricity workers, for instance, the power workers. Um, but in reality, they were left to stand alone, um, and they did so courageously. Now, on the question of picketing, there was many turning points in this strike, but Orgreave stands out as a, as a, as a huge example, and it, it remains to this day a, a very important event and a moment in the class struggle in Br Britain, actually, but particularly during the miners' strike. Orgreave, on the 18th of June, 1984, there was a standoff. 10,000 miners, but this time they weren't facing a few hundred police. They were facing, they were facing 5,000 police, armed with truncheons, uh, shields, police officers on horseback chasing miners. Um, it, was a, it was an important turning point. It was the full weight of the brutality of the bourgeois state. Um, I'm using terms here that some of you might think are a bit excessive, but you look at what happened and you see when Engels said that the, armed body, that the state is fundamentally armed bodies of men in defense of private property, you see what happened at Orgreave and you see it very, very clearly. On that day, the BBC, now when you think the BBC is supposedly the serious uh, news um, uh, channel, now website, etc., if the BBC says so, then it must be true. As Trotsky pointed out about the Times, he said the Times newspaper tells the truth 90% of the time in order to be more convincing 10% of the time when it really is needed to be convincing. If it's told the truth nine times out of 10, why should it be lying on the 10th occasion? The BBC that day re reversed the news. What happened was the miners were peacefully picketing, but they saw this, this big pileup of uh, police with their shields. And the way the TV showed it, they showed the miners hitting back, throwing stones, attacking the police. And then they showed the police charge. The truth was it was the other way around. 
the police charged brutally, and then the miners defended themselves. Long after that, the BBC apologized for this technical hitch. It sometimes happens, doesn't it? You know, when you're uh, copying and pasting, and you know, you, you get the order wrong. Um, the aim was to show the mass of people of Britain, look at these miners, look at how violent they are, and therefore justifying the, the, the police attacks. But um, the, I just wanted to quote a little bit on Orgreave, because it's an important moment. Uh, this is from an article published on the socialist.net website we have in, in Britain. Um, and it describes uh, what happened there um, at Orgreave. It says, the pickets assembled in a housing estate on the Sheffield side of the Orgreave plant. The police assembled in front of the coke works while mounted police lined up in the adjacent field. Other police with dogs, as well as thousands in riot gear, mobilized their ranks to surround the pickets. As soon as the lorries had entered the plant to load up, riot police attacked the pickets in a series of baton charges. The mounted police rode into the strikers, followed by truncheon-wielding foot police, foot police. This is democratic Britain in 1984. Despite the beatings and the arrests, the miners were not cowed. However, the following days, pickets were diverted by the Yorkshire area to Nottingham, resulting in hundreds rather than thousands facing the picket lines. On the 30th of May, Scargill was arrested. This is the leader of the miners. But this served only to increase the anger of the pickets. On the 18th of June, 5,000 strikers turned up and were met with an orgy of violence by the police. The forces of law and order, in inverted commas, ran riot, chasing and bludgeoning pickets. Wounded pickets were even arrested while in bed in hospital. Of course, the capitalist media portrayed the whole episode as picket line violence. And doctored film footage was used to blame the disorder and violence on the NUM. There were no mass pickets of all grief after that. The use of police horses to deal with riots has always been seen as the ultimate response, stated the police review a few weeks before Orgreave. From the Trafalgar Square riots of 100 years ago to the anti-fascist skirmishes of the 30s, the imagery of charging horses and flailing batons has been enough to put the seal on charges of police brutality. Orgreave was no different. In August, 137 riot charges against miners arising from the Orgreave police operation were dropped for lack of evidence, but the police had done their job. There are eyewitnesses. I could quote some of them. It says, this is one miner, young miner, who was present at Orgreave, Paul Winter. June 18, 1984 was a most different and bizarre day. And it's taken a lot of years to realize just how significant it was both in terms of police history and my whole life in general. I was arrested a few days before what became known as the Battle of Orgreave as I traveled on the A1 near Blythe to Nottinghamshire. I spent a day in Mansfield police custody and was put before a specially set up court the same day. The NUM solicitor had instructed me to plead guilty to a charge of obstruction and I was fined 75 pounds, which the union paid. I was told at this point, I could now only picket my own place of work and left in no uncertain terms, I would be in serious trouble 
if arrested again. Didn't stop him. He says, um, he went on, he, 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 he went to Pickett. I'll skip over some of it for lack of time. He describes how we arrived very, very early and unlike before, were actually shown where to park, then escorted to a large field. At this stage, the sheer number of police was the major significant difference, along with the fact we saw them unloading riot shields, which I had never seen before. When the push and shove came, I hung well back as I did not want to be recognized um, as he'd been arrested before. By the now long, thick wall of police who were banging Zulu-like on their shields. Can you imagine this? This was trying to strike terror into the miners. Thousands of police with their sh shields, bum, 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 making this noise before entering into battle. The noise was immense. And for a few seconds, I was stunned by the sheer weight of numbers running back towards me. It was then I realized they were running from horses, what seemed like dozens of horses. As I turned and ran, I realized there were no holds barred here. They were wild and manic, lashing out at anyone, regardless of whether they stood or ran. I saw men dazed and bewildered, covered in blood. But what struck me was seeing a man in his 50s, hands over his head, cowering, and he had pissed himself with fear. Not Normandy, 1984, 1944, but Rotherham, 1984. I could go on and on and on and quote what happened. Orgreave was a turning point, one of the main turning points. The huge numbers of police and absolute brutality and the violence um, was there to, um, to give a, a lesson to the miners. Now, during this strike, to go back to my connection, I was, I was in Milan at the time. I was living in Italy. I worked with these miners for three weeks. I traveled up and down the country, and I translated for this miner. Um, as I said, I showed you the picture of this. Tom Cartley, his name was, unfortunately he died of um, cancer years later. I managed to find his daughter because I dug out these photos, and I thought, I've got to send these to somebody. I sent them to her daughter, and she was very pleased um, to get them. But he described every speech he gave, I translated into Italian, and I saw the effect it had on people. His son couldn't get the bus to go to work. It was very moving to translate that experience. His son had holes in his shoes. He couldn't afford to pay for the shoes. Um, and he described the suffering that they had. And you could see the faces of the audience, these Italians listening in, these workers. We raised huge amounts of money. This was happening in many countries. He described the police violence. He told, he told them how he was arrested on a picket line. They'd broken his arm. Didn't care. They picked him up, hands and legs, and threw him in the back, into the back of the police van with a broken arm. Threw him into a prison. It was only one of the local police from the local village that recognized him and called in a doctor. Um, the Metropolitan Police, these organized by Thatcher, were brutal um, to the nth de degree. But it was interesting. I spent a lot of time talking to him, sharing meals with him, sleeping with him, driving with him. And he told me how he'd always been a Labour Party supporter, but a moderate. He always thought Tony Benn was extreme. He said to me, he became a Tony Benn supporter during the strike. 
Um, he, um, and he told us, I mean, I'll, I'll tell it straight. I was a member, member of the militant tendency in Britain and, and, and later uh, working with the same ideas in Italy. He said to me at the end of the uh, journey, he said, any of your comrades are welcome to our village anytime you want to come. Any comrade of the militant is welcome here after what you've done for us. Um, in, you know, the, the money that we collected for them and, and, and the effort we put in. Um, but um, he also said, I think he said at one point that he used to think police officers were just these nice guys that help old ladies across the road. But I think he said, I wouldn't piss on a police officer if I saw him dying in the street. That was the change in consciousness of an ordinary average worker. Good, good solid worker, militant trade unionist. But, you know, his, his views changed in the process of the strike, like many of them did. And significantly, the views of the women, the wives of the miners, played a huge role in the solidarity, organizing kitchens, food, etc. Some of them proved to be even more militant than the husbands. There's one story I heard. Towards the end of the strike, under pressure, one miner went back to work. He came home. You know what he found? His wife's wedding ring on the mantelpiece. She'd gone. That was a message. You know, no, we fought for all this, and now you're going back to work. That was how intense that moment was. But um, just one little example. There was a doctor listening in one of these meetings in Milan, and he, he, he'd originally put a 100,000 lira note uh, in the collection, and he said he wanted to give 50, and I said, well, I'll give you the change afterwards, you know. He listened to the meeting. We collected, uh, I mean, it sounds like a lot, 1,600,000, but that was lira. That was about 500 pounds, I think. But um, I said, do you want, he said, no, 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 he said. Keep money. After what I heard that miner say, um, you keep it. Now, it's also significant. It had a huge international resonance, the strike of the miners. I could see it in Italy. You know, we traveled around. I actually tried to get, uh, I personally tried to get the miners to speak in one factory in Milan because I was, I was teaching English to these shop stewards. And I said, and, and they were very keen. Yeah, we'll have it. So they had a meeting of the shop stewards. As soon as the trade union tops in Milan found out that we were going to take the miners into that factory, into that engineering factory, the doors came down shut, bang. And one of these shop stewards said to me, Fred, you, you put me in a really difficult position. What, what, what's going on? And I said, don't worry. They're just British miners. They're not terrorists. They were British miners, and the British and the Italian trade union leaders feared for what those miners would say. Why? The last thing the Italian trade union leaders wanted was for workers in Britain to be told about an all-out strike that had been going on for the, by then. It was in the 11th month. They feared contagion. Why? Because of the similar conditions in Italy. Um, I could say a lot more on this, but I won't. Um, now, to show you how the strike could have been won at different moments, there was a union called NACODS, um, which is um, basically, it was the foreman of the pits, right, in charge of uh, safety and other, other things. They voted for strike action. They voted in a ballot, and 82.5% voted for strike action. 
Did the leaders of that union call a strike? No, they did not. Had they come out, even the pits which were working would have had to close because without the presence of these people, the pits could not work. What did the union leaders do? Did not call the strike. That was another, that was a, it shows you how it could have, it, it could have been, um, could have been won. Um, they, they, they pulled back from calling out uh, strike action um, and, of course, left the miners uh, to fight it out for themselves. Um, now, moving on fast because I'm, I'm, time is, is going on. As I said, there was the responsibility of the trade union leaders, the responsibility of the TUC. All of them were working for the defeat of the miners. Some of them would give verbal support. Oh, yes, yes, the miners, the miners. But none of them would cause strike action or solidarity with the miners. They were left on their own, and they were literally starved back to work. This, uh, this miner that I uh, was with, it was actually a few weeks before the end. Every day, he was just, he was, his main concern was, how much money have we collected? How much money? He wouldn't take a penny. He wouldn't spend anything. He was determined to collect as much money as possible to take back to his pits. I still have the letter of thanks from the Littleton Colliery at the time, thanking us for our um, campaign. Um, but towards the end of the strike, there was this phenomenon. Miners who had been on strike eight, nine, ten months, literally at the limit of what they could take. And they were, they were the, there was the beginnings of a trickle back to work. They felt they couldn't win. They couldn't hold out. That led to a lot of bitterness because some of them fought to the end. Um, this is what was happening at the time I was um, uh, accompanying this miner at, at, uh, at the beginning of 1985. Now, this, um, the miner the strike ended in a defeat and it was a, a, an extremely important event. It was a major turning point in the class struggle in Britain uh, in the post sort of 1970s period. But if you remember, if you remember, how can I say that to all these young people? <laughs> if you read it in any history books, there was the equivalent to the British miners in Italy in 1980, the famous Fiat strike that lasted five weeks. I can remember the same kind of thing. People from all over Italy collecting food, organizing coaches, going to the factories miles away, picketing, taking the food, taking the money. The workers, were put, they placed all their hopes in that strike. Either we win or we all lose. That was the feeling. And it was the same in Britain. The miners, if they win, we all win. If they lose, it's a major loss for, for all of us. In the States, Reagan was on the union bashing. The flight controllers union was smashed. Um, and if you look at all the countries, there's an equivalent key moment or moments where... The bosses took on the workers. Why? We're going to make you pay for everything we had to give you in the previous period. All the successful strikes. The miners had to pay for the successes of 1972 and 74. Um, the Italian workers had to pay for the, for the huge movement of the 1970s and what they forced the capitalists to, to concede. It was a turning point in the class struggle and um, it had um, long-lasting effects, actually. It, it produced a significant change and a downturn in the class struggle, both on the trade union front 
and the political front. And there, there was a receding of class struggle and even, even consciousness, you could say, was pushed back. And then we had the famous 80s and 90s. The, um, the bourgeois weren't happy with having defeated the miners. They then introduced a law on picketing. Mass picketing was something which they feared. Thatcher introduced a law which established that you could only have uh, six people maximum on a picket line. Why? Well, obviously, Saltney Gate with 10,000 uh, was a lesson. We can't have that happening again. We have to make it illegal. You can be arrested if you have too many people. And that law is still on the statute books. Labour came to power in 1997, but Tony Blair thought it was a good idea to, you know, just leave it there. You never know, might need it. Um, did not um, act on it. Interestingly, in an interview with uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, in 2016, when they were trying to present him as the bogeyman, the terrible guy that will do terrible, terrible things. And you know, one of the terrible things that he would do, he would remove the limit to the numbers of pickets. Um, and I read here from this article in The Guardian, 2016, January 2016. Jeremy Corbyn has said he would repeal legislation introduced by Margaret Thatcher that outlawed sympathy strikes in which workers joined a picket line to support colleagues from another industry. His position is in direct opposition to the Labour 1997 manifesto of Tony Blair, which said, we make it clear that there will be no return to flying pickets, secondary action, strikes with no ballots, or the trade union law of the 1970s. When, when somebody says that Tony Blair was a Tory in disguise, some people used to get offended in the Labour Party when you said that. Well, isn't this an example of a Tory in disguise? They also managed to split the miners' union. In the areas where um, there, was no, there, there was opposition, like in Derbyshire, they, 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 they organized the Union of Democratic Miners. So they split the NUM as part of a, an attempt to weaken them. There were some strikes subsequently. There was the very important print workers' strike, Wapping, in 1986. There was the 1986-87 Dockers' strike. Um, but the trade union leaders didn't coordinate, didn't build up on it. And there was hanging over the whole working class the defeat of, um, of the uh, miners. And the message that got across was, if the miners couldn't win, how can we win? And I've seen you know, documentaries and even interviews with workers stating that it had a demoralizing effect. Now, the, the state, the Tories, invested billions, billions and billions in preparing for the miners' strike. You would think it was a waste of money. It was not from their point of view, because it wasn't so much the money they were spending there, it was the impact it would have on the working class over decades. And then they started to, to, to take back the concessions, the flexibility of labor. And now, if you look at the conditions in which young people are having to work, you can see how it has massively paid off for the bourgeois allowing them to massively increase profits. If you look at the rate of profit, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the falling rate of profit. The rate of profit from the mid-60s to the mid-70s was clearly falling. 
But if you look at the rate of profit from the early to mid 80s, for about 20 years or more, the rate of profit started going up again. And was that due to massive investment in technology? That was only partially the answer. The other answer was they were massively squeezing the working class and getting more surplus value out of the working class thanks to that defeat. It paid for decades. Um, the result was coal was finally privatized in 1994. In 1983, 174 pits were closed and the last mine was closed in 2015. And if you go to some of these former mining communities where practically the whole livelihood was based on the pits, extreme poverty, huge social problems, alcoholism, drugs, unemployment, alienation. Um, this is what happened um, to the miners. But you see, history comes around and full circle. And the circle is about to be completed. Just the other day in Britain, the, um, the Railway Workers Union, the RMT, held a national ballot for strike action. Now, some of the things they changed in the laws were to try and make ballots more difficult, i.e., you have to have at least a 50% turnout at a, 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 um, a ballot for it to be valid legally. So if you get 45% and they vote for strike action, it's considered invalid. Well, the turnout the other day was 71%. But the vote for the strike, even more significant, 89% voted for strike action. This was yesterday. Now, this could be the biggest strike in Britain for decades. Um, and it could even provoke a wider struggle. Because you see, transport obviously is very important. You block the railways and it's, you know, they privatized the railways since then. There's like 12 railway companies and they balloted all of them. All of them are voting solidly for strike action to the point that now the Tories are thinking of introducing new laws, new legislation. I think in Canada, you already have it, back to work legislation. In Britain, you don't have it. Interestingly, you know in Italy they have it. They've had it for longer than most. You know when it was introduced? In Italy, it was introduced during the fascist regime. And when the fascist regime collapsed, they just forgot to remove that law from the statutes. <laughs> I don't think they forgot. They consciously kept it. You never know when you might need it. Um, and in certain services like, you know, hospital, transport, etc., you can force workers back um, under the force of law. And they are considering introducing such a law in Britain. And it's provoking a lot of anger. Just to um, quote some trade union leaders, uh, where is it? Um, you see, on the railways, the workers are fighting a £2 billion um, uh, package of cuts that can see, could see thousands of jobs cut and also a wage freeze. Can you imagine introducing a wage freeze today? Inflation in Britain is moving towards 10% and you're telling the workers, I'm going to block your wages. That is like a red rag to a bull in, in, in this situation, um, precisely with the rise of inflation. But you see, the Tory minister, 
of Transport, Grant Shapps, is talking about this legislation, which would effectively, as I said, outlaw strikes. What has been the response of the unions? Mick Lynch, the, the, uh, the general secretary of the RMT, said this, any attempt by Grant Shapps to make effective strike action illegal on the railways will be met with the fiercest resistance from RMT and the wider trade union movement. Then there's the new secretary of, of Unite. Unite is one of the biggest unions, together with Unison, very powerful union. The Unite General Secretary, Sharon Graham, who represents a significant shift to the left in that union, she said that her union, quote, will confront head on and by whatever means necessary, any further attacks on the right to strike. He says, we are now forced to put the government on notice. If you force our legitimate activities outside the law, then don't expect us to play by the rules. This is 2022. As I said, it's come full circle. You can defeat the working class like in 1984 and the miners. You can then proceed to increase the rate of exploitation to the nth degree. But capitalism enters into crisis, as it is now in a deep crisis. Inflation is growing constantly everywhere. And we're seeing the unions preparing. We are going to see strikes. We are going to see strikes where you least expect them. It's not by chance that in the USA, the workers of Amazon and Starbucks, places that were considered, oh, you can't unionize these places. You remember all that talk? Oh, no, no. Well, they're unionizing. Surprise, surprise. When I read that, I wasn't surprised. I was overjoyed, but I thought this sooner or later had to happen. You cannot squeeze the working class and squeeze it and squeeze it and not expect a reaction. It's, it's begun, it's already beginning. In the United States, the overwhelming majority of people interviewed express a favorable view of trade unions. In the young generation, it's over 70%. Only 11% of the workforce in the United States is unionized. And yet, three quarters of people see unions in a favorable way. Why? Because clearly, they feel the need for unions. And in Britain, you can see what is being prepared. Um, and this is going to be, I think, on an even bigger scale than what we saw in the 1970s. Um, so the lessons of the British, generals, uh, the British miners' strike are, I would say, several. One, of course, is uh, there was a tactical error, whatever you could discuss, but that wasn't the reason. Because you see, had they had a ballot and voted for strike action, the, the bourgeois wouldn't have said, oh, oh, that's okay then. Or the trade union leaders of the TUC, they wouldn't have said, oh, in that case, yeah, 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 a great deal. We're going to organize a general strike, fine. No, they would have found other ways of maneuvering against the, uh, the miners. But the biggest lesson is this. There wasn't a fighting leadership of the trade unions. The unions had become bureaucratized. They did not represent the interests of the working class. What we need to do today is to, is to start to struggle from the bottom up and start to build an opposition inside the trade unions that prepares for these events. And at the same time, on the political front, 
Kinnock, leader of the Labour Party, instead of bringing the weight of the Labour Party behind the miners, attacked them, criticised them. We need a workers' organisation, mass workers' organisations, on the side of the working class. But what this actually means is really thinking it through to the end. How are we going to go through another wave of strikes like the one we saw in the 70s and the 80s? and go down to defeat again because of the leadership. You know, learn from, we have to learn from history. We need the fighting leadership. That means we have to build a political force that operates in a different way, that is based on a revolutionary outlook because the miners' strike gave us a glimpse of real class war. That's gonna come back. This time, we want to win, not lose, but winning doesn't mean just a wage increase. It means removing the parties such as the Tories who carry out these laws and the class that stands behind them, the capitalist class, which has an interest in these laws, in in, in fighting off the working class, periodically challenging the workers, defeating them because of lack of leadership, and then increasing even more the rate of exploitation. This cannot go on forever. And the future, and this generation of young people must learn from the past in order to understand what we need to do in the fu- today and in the future. That's the lesson we've got to take on board. And I will leave it there for now. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.